what can sometimes happen in faith communities is the sense that our spiritual solutions are our only solutions. And we become wary of people who are inside our community. My dad was a lifelong pastor and he used to say, don't be so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good, right? So I think sometimes we have a hard time balancing our lofty spiritual goals with the reality that life is hard and we sometimes need help. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everybody, to the Center for Congregations podcast. I am Shelley Riggs-Jordan, and I am joined today with my co-host, Matt Burke. Matt, welcome. It's good to see you. Hey, Shelley. Or listen to you, or hear you. I don't know. What's the appropriate thing to say? Because <laughs> they can't see you. Yeah. Well, you and I are seeing each other, so it's appropriate for you to say that you're seeing me, even <laughs> okay. if the audience isn't, but that's just fine. <laughs> And if we had to be like really precise, it'd be like, it's so nice to see you today, but for those listening to hear you, or I mean... <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does get a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, and as we hear in the interview, we also run into time and space issues with when things are happening. So not only do we have differences in sensory input, but we have differences in time experiences. So yes. it's a very existential crisis is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It is, it is. <laughs> so today, Matt and I get the opportunity to talk with Dr. Jessica Brown about mental health issues, mental health issues specifically in the context of congregation and spiritual life, something that I think is on the minds and hearts of a lot of clergy and lay leaders and folks in the pews of late with the way the world has kind of fallen apart and slowly begun to put itself back together. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I have to confess, not quite a conflict of interest, but perhaps a specific personal bias that I have been someone who's taken advantage of therapy for a number of years. My wife is a licensed mental health counselor, has been for two or three years. And so, you know, I've seen behind the curtain and know the difference between CBT and ISTDP. So, <laughs> therapy is something that actually I'm very passionate about, something that I believe in. And I, I'm joking. I mean, I don't think it's a bias that anybody needs to be worried about, <laughs> but just wanted to throw that out, that it's something that I definitely think is incredibly valuable personally and something that I do think is valuable for congregations. Oh, absolutely. So do I. And I'm so excited to see it become a kind of front burner issue for mm -hmm. folks in congregations and pastors especially, because I think a lot of times pastors are expected to carry a load that they aren't equipped to carry. And so for it to start mm -hmm. becoming more normalized, to talk about it. And I think the more we talk about it, the more normal it becomes. And also to know when you're at your limit and when to seek help, not just for someone who needs the therapy, but for somebody who says, this is more than I can help you with. Let me help you find somebody mm -hmm. who can mm -hmm. take you to the next step. Yeah, 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 absolutely. 
Yeah, and has this specifically popped up, Shelley, in your conversations with congregations in Southeast Indiana? Are there any ways that mental health has become a topic that you've addressed either through kind of our resource consulting or through our granting? I see it mostly in my conversations with pastors Mm -hmm. because mostly on a personal level because I like to ask pastors, no matter what the context of the conversation is, how are you doing really? Because I think pastors don't get asked that very often. And so they talk a lot about where they are mental health-wise, where a lot of their congregational members are mental health-wise, and just more and more awareness, I think, that's happening out there. And then as people say, you know, we see this need, we don't know how to meet it. So those conversations are starting to happen. How do we help folks? How about for you, Matt? Where are you seeing it in your work? Yeah, the same way. I think I've had a few more direct conversations where congregations have asked about support and help in becoming a place that deals with mental health better. And so yeah, congregations have reached out about you know seeking professionals who can help them. There have been some grant circumstances where folks have reached out to organizations. I think of Mental Health First Aid, which is a really cool organization, which I'll talk a little bit more about in our resource section today. But organizations and people with expertise that congregations are reaching out to to hire to help them wrestle and grapple with this. And so, yeah, definitely a big topic. Those of you who are longtime listeners to the podcast know we've covered this quite a bit. I think our second episode ever, uh, all the way back in 2020, was on mental health with Dr. Hillary McBride, which that interview is still timely. So even though we were in the midst of the pandemic, the things that we talked about were still timely. As always, we shamelessly self-reference our own work. (laughs) So... (laughs) If you want to go back and check out that and also some other podcasts as well. But yeah, such a critical topic and something that I'm really passionate about. We've said about all we need to say, I think, about how it's intersected with our work. We know it's something that's critical in congregational life right now. So let's get to the interview. And it's with Dr. Jessica Young-Brown. She's a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice and focuses on a lot of aspects of mental health and mental well-being. But again, we specifically talk about that in congregations, and we really enjoyed the conversation. Shelly and I felt like we could have talked to her for hours, but we tried to keep it manageable. So we've got a relatively brief interview, but we hope you enjoy this interview, and we'll be back on the other side of it to share a little bit more. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Jessica Brown, and we're so glad to have you as part of the podcast. Thanks for being here, Jessica. Thank you. I'm excited to be here as well. Just looking at your website, this interview could go so many different directions, (laughs) and there's so many things that I would be so excited to talk to you about. So actually, why don't we back up and start with, because you are in the world of mental health and mental health and its intersection with congregations, I would love to hear you talk about maybe one or two things that you think congregations need to know or be aware of about mental health as it stands in our society right now? Sure. So the benefit of having been in the field for a while is I've had the opportunity to see quite an evolution in the way churches respond Mm -hmm. to mental health. So that feels really good. I think churches are really excited and engaged around mental health issues. One of the things I really like to push with churches is that when we talk about mental health in churches, we're not just talking about mental illness. I think it's important to talk about mental illness because we know, I think the latest stats, which are probably underestimated, something like one in five adults meet criteria for a diagnosable condition, right? So it's important to talk about diagnoses. But I also think it's important to think about mental health as a part of the way we understand our health holistically, such that 
a mental health ministry is not just a way to identify people who are potentially sick, but it's about what does it mean to care for ourselves in ways that honor us as God's creation. And so I really like to have people to think about mental health and mental wellness as just one of the ways we are good stewards over ourselves in relationship to God and that God is intimately invested in our mental health and wholeness. Hmm. So I think that's the first piece that I encourage churches around. The second piece is really kind of thinking about the ways mental health intersects with all of the other areas of our lives. So our working conditions, people who are experiencing food insecurity, homelessness, right? All of those kinds of things are related to our mental health. And so attending Mm -hmm. to our mental health also means attending to ourselves wholly as human beings and really thinking about how do we as churches minister to the whole person. We tend to focus on spiritual health, understandably so, but you know, Jesus would often feed people before he preached, right? So there's a great Mm -hmm. model just about attending to ourselves as human beings as we build ourselves spiritually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you mentioned earlier on that you've seen an evolution of how congregations are interacting with mental health. And we've actually in this podcast before talked about some of those barriers. And I don't know if you would want to speak to some of the barriers that you think are the most relevant, but I'm also curious about to what do you attribute those barriers being overcome? Like what's causing this positive trend in congregations to be more accepting of the idea of mental health and mental well-being and seeking support and help in that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. In terms of why I think it's trending in a way that I would say is the right direction, Mm -hmm. I think a piece of it is because as a community, as a country, we are talking about mental health more. And so that means you have people who are more openly talking about going to therapy appointments or needing a medication for depression or anxiety or whatever. I also think, frankly, and I don't think this is necessarily a good pathway, but it's a pathway nonetheless. Pastors are more and more overextended than they Mm -hmm. ever were before. And so I think the consequence of that is that pastors have had to seek help for themselves in order to stay in ministry. And one of the big things I teach in congregations is modeling, right? When we can talk about as leaders our own mental health experiences that helps set the stage for people being more authentic as a part of the congregation. So I think that's a piece too. In terms of some of the barriers, so I work often with Black church populations, so there's kind of this double whammy of people of color often experience a lot of mental health stigma. Some of that is because often we are not reflected in the professionals in the field. Some of it is because there's historically been mistrust of medical systems because of mistreatment in the past. And some of it is simply because the way oppression works, there are often these interacting systemic issues that make mental health care less accessible, right? So that's a piece of it. Mm -hmm. If you add on to that, folks who are in faith communities, what can sometimes happen in faith communities is the sense that our spiritual solutions are our only solutions, And we become wary of people who are inside our community. My dad was a lifelong pastor and he used to say, don't be so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good, right? So I think sometimes we have a hard time balancing our lofty spiritual goals with the reality that life is hard and we sometimes need help. And so I think that can be a real challenge for people. The other thing I would add 
And this is related to the piece that I was saying about folks in minoritized communities is often people who ascribe to a religious or spiritual tradition want to be able to talk about that in the context of their mental health. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has happened that has created a divide in the fields between psychology and religion, or I should say mental health more broadly in religion, is that people have not always been able to find a space to talk about their faith and to have it respected and understood in the context of mental health treatment. And so, you know, if I have a belief or a system of traditions that is the way I view the world, if I'm forced to choose either my faith or getting my mental health needs met, it makes sense that people would choose their faith instead, right? And that's Mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. churches really become gateways to trying to connect people with all these different services. Because we know pastors have been doing pastoral counseling for years and it is effective and an important part of the way we care for people. And it's not sufficient for much of what people are dealing with today, right? But it can often serve as kind of a band-aid when people have concerns about getting their needs met through more traditional methods. Mm-hmm. I wrote down your dad's quote. That is so great. Don't be so spiritually minded that you are no earthly good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you also kind of see, you were talking about how pastors are starting to open up about their own struggles. Do you see that as they do that more and more, they're also willing to say, hey, maybe this is more than I can handle and outsourcing some of that therapy? Because I think pastors were expected to do everything, even when they weren't able. So do you see that kind of shifting and changing also what's expected of pastors? Absolutely. I have a private practice and probably 90% of my referrals are direct referrals from pastors. And so they are absolutely realizing this is beyond what I can manage. And part of what I encourage pastors to do is to refer people in such a way that they don't feel like they're being thrown out, right? We as the congregation stay in a pastoral care role, but we're able to do that more effectively if the person is getting medical needs met. You know, it's just like, I use this example, it's really simple, but you know, if someone has a heart attack during a church service, we pray and we call 911. We can do both things at the same time, mm. right? And I, yeah, I view mental health the same way. We pray, we offer support, and we refer to the appropriate professional. And part of what we can do as congregations is have a list of good referrals. So not just somebody we Googled, but somebody who we know can help people to integrate their faith and their mental health in really tangible ways. You know, for me and my therapy practice, Scriptures can be affirmations. And if you ask me to pray in a session, we will pray in a session. And maybe one of your homework assignments for the week is to go to Bible study or connect with your pastor, right? And so I think when we can help people integrate those things, so it's a seamless transition between those spiritual practices and our mental health practices, we really help people to see that we don't have to be divided. We can have all parts of ourselves in one place. I like that. So this removal of stigma, it's really kind of central, isn't it? Because as we see mental health more in line with physical health issues, then it becomes like you don't have enough faith or you could just pray your way to health. But there's actual, you can pray and you have faith, but let's get some medical help also. Absolutely. I've had clients tell me that before they searched for a therapist, they sat down and prayed and asked God to guide their search. Perfect. Right. I mean, I think if we're going to say that God is omnipresent, which we love to say, 
then let God be omnipresent. <laughs> God can also be in the medication your doctor's prescribing or in that therapy appointment, right? And for me, it's an opportunity to open up our capacity for the way we see and understand God. I like that. Plus, we say we believe mind, body, spirit connection, right? So, <laughs> and there are all these examples in the Bible of people who were in emotional distress. And God has this track record of just attending to people and not forcing them into any particular posture. I love this story in Second Kings of Elijah when he's like over it, right? And so he goes into a cave and it's basically like, kill me now. <laughs> you can have these people. The prophet thing is not working out. I'd rather just die, right? I mean, he's very clear about that. And God sends an angel with food and says, eat and take a nap. That's it. Like there's no rebuke. There's no condemnation. There's no telling him he's not praying hard enough. Yeah. God says, I can see you're overextended. Rest, nourish yourself, and I'll come back. Right. And I think it's such a great model for how we care for people. Like you're not out of connection with God if you're overextended or overwhelmed or tapped out. But it's actually an invitation to get closer in connection with God, allow God to attend to you and allow us as the community to be the hands and feet of God in the way we attend to you as well. Mm. So it's really about being willing to be transparent and vulnerable with each other too, which is something that we're not very good at. Yeah. I mean, the relationship piece, I think is so important and it's foundational to the work that we do. And the terminology I like to use is ministry for mental health, right? Which really incorporates attending to mental illness, but also just acknowledging that we are people and being human beings is really hard sometimes, especially if you're adulting, but even if you're not adulting, right? I mean, it's just hard to be a person sometimes. It is. And I think when we start with relationship, we do at least open up the possibility for vulnerability, we also, you know, we talk a lot in the mental health field about complex trauma and the, the impact of trauma on people's lives. What that means in congregations is that we have to be willing to do the work to prove ourselves trustworthy mm. because we can't assume that just because somebody walks into our building or logs onto our virtual church service that they've decided we are safe. They might be testing us out. And so I think the big question for us as congregations is how can we demonstrate ourselves to be a safe landing place, to be a community where people can come undone and feel like they can come back the next Sunday, right? What does that look and feel like? Ooh, I'm just trying to imagine that. Like <laughs> that would be incredible. I just don't know that most of our congregations are there. But that would just be an incredible thing. That would be a gift. You know, I think it's a work in progress. Yes. Right? Yes. And I think that, so the thing about people who have been hurt in the past is they've got great detection systems for danger in the future, right? You could argue that sometimes those detection systems are overactive, right? But ultimately, we do what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. Right. And so I think it's a long term goal for those of us who are in leadership or I would argue, you know, just in a position to care. It means transforming the way we think about, quote unquote, bad behavior. Mm. 
I taught at a seminary for many years and in my Christian ed classes, one of the things I would tell people is that bad behavior is an expression of an unmet need, right? Like often the people who are acting out the most, who frustrate us, who we secretly are thinking, I wish they would leave, (laughs) right? (laughs) Those are the people who are crying out for help and do not have the tools for how to do that in ways that actually get their needs met. And so I think this is really where spiritual maturity and self-care come in because it takes us sometimes suspending our initial reactions so that we can be that place of safety or at least demonstrate that we can be that place of safety that people need. And it's a lot of work, which is why we each have to be responsible for ourselves. In Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens, but every person is responsible for bearing their own load, right? So we have to bear our own load in terms of taking care of ourselves. And when we do that, we're better equipped to share each other's burdens and to do that in ways where people continue to feel connected, even if they're suffering. So I'm curious, as you're talking about congregations becoming a place where people can be trustworthy. I know that there's this idea out there called spiritual trauma, and you are probably more familiar with it than I am. So I'm actually not going to try to define it. (laughs) I'm going to let you do so. Sure. So spiritual trauma or spiritual abuse, you can hear either of those terms, really boils down to people being harmed in the context of faith communities, particularly when the tool of violence is either doctrine or authority, right? So it could look like a pastor or church leader who's wielding power to control someone's behavior. The common example you hear about is like using money and giving it to the church instead of paying bills or taking care of things people need at home, right? Just as with any trauma, I think there can be kind of a spectrum where you have some people who have these horrific experiences of being excommunicated or, you know, being shut out from communities because of, quote, bad behavior. And then there are more insidious things like really feeling shamed and left out in more covert ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think all of those can fall under that umbrella of spiritual trauma and abuse. You know, those of us who are like mainline Protestants or a part of a, a standing denomination, we often sort of look at cults as the outlier, like, oh, those are those people over there. And I think there's an extreme nature to that that is different than what many people experience in faith communities. But it's important that we are all aware that those kinds of extreme practices can happen even in the context of communities that don't identify as extreme, mm-hmm. right? And so the consequence of that is you have people who say, well, churches are not safe, or I'm going to write off religion altogether, or if this is what God is, I don't want to be connected to God, right? And I, for me, as a human being in the world, I recognize and celebrate the capacity for us to identify anywhere on the religious spectrum, right? I also think we damage our witness if people have left church, not because of their own exploration, but because church was not a place where they felt they could belong. Mm. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's such a helpful concept for me as I've been listening to and paying attention to the world of those who are deconstructing, especially young adults for a long period of time. And spiritual trauma is something that gets brought up a lot. And I think you've already correctly pointed to the fact that awareness is important, knowing that people are coming from that. What advice would you have for congregational leadership whether that be lay leaders, clergy, et cetera, how can they maintain an awareness of that and try to work towards being a place that might be perceived as a potential for a safe space for those who have experienced spiritual trauma? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the things we have to do is to give people space to tell their stories. As a mental health professional, you know, most of us will tell you one of the most powerfully healing processes for human beings is to just be able to say, here's what happened to me and here's how it impacted me. My sense is that often in faith communities, when someone brings up spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma, our first inclination is to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're not like them because we don't do that or, or that would never happen here. Right. And it's like, well, okay, but how is that helpful to this person who's really just trying to tell you their narrative, right? And so I think we have to suspend our desire to defend ourselves first. The gift and the curse, I would argue, about being a Christian is that one of us represents all of us, right? (laughs) And that's a challenge sometimes, right? For many of us who are trying to live a different way. Good and bad. (laughs) But it is, right? So I'll give you an example One of the things that often comes up in my practice is folks who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum, right? So if you look at my website, I'm very clearly oriented towards spiritually integrated psychotherapy and identify as a Christian, right? They are going to have a question about me as to whether I am going to be affirming to them. And even though I know my beliefs, because I also know how Christians operate in the world sometimes... It's my responsibility to understand that there's real pain behind a question that they have for me. And that question is a desire to protect themselves, right? So I could say, oh, no, I would never do that. And I can't think, or I could say, it actually makes a lot of sense that you would ask me that question. And here's what I believe. And here's how that's going to show up in our work, right? So removing that desire to defend ourselves actually is one of the ways we can show ourselves to be trustworthy, I also think there's logistical things around, are there clear policies and procedures about who has power, how much power they have? Is there a clear system of checks and balances? Are we open about our governance processes in the church, right? Because a lot of that spiritual abuse and spiritual violence happens when people are in authority, but that authority is unchecked. Mm. Right. And so even being transparent about our governance processes, I think at least help us to try to prevent some of that from happening. Mm -hmm. And what I would add to that is really building a culture around authentic care. You can never be totally in charge of people's beliefs or views or opinions or behaviors, but we can as a community set a standard about our commitments to each other, about the ways we're going to relate to each other. And we hold people accountable in love when they don't live into that standard, right? Mm -hmm. It had never occurred to me until right now that most churches don't have what would be considered an HR department. (laughs) 
Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're in a corporation or an organization and you've got a problem with someone in leadership, there's a clear, like, you go to HR. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I love what you just said because it's essentially defining and being explicit. And my gosh, what kind of trust would that build if a congregation was transparent and said, look, if there's something that's going on that you're like, I don't know about this, go talk to this person or go talk to this committee or these people. And just this sense that, okay, there's accountability here. There's actually a way for me to have a voice. Absolutely. So I'm from the Baptist tradition, right? So in our context, there's explicit accountability between the pastor and sort of the governing board that could be trustees or deacons or who, right? Those are typically the people in Baptist churches. I think the piece that we can make more explicit is that those folks are accountable to the congregation. The congregation is accountable to itself, right? So in some ways, there are these concentric circles of accountability. And I think it's a very different frame than the hierarchical leadership structure that many churches and denominations have. But, you know, we know the kind of violence that happens in hierarchical structures because who's ever at the top who do they answer to? <laughs> Especially if they lead in such a way that people are afraid to challenge them directly. So then you've literally cut off the only way to hold people accountable to whatever we say our community standards are. Hmm. That's so good. Well, I was thinking that even in that Baptist system sometimes, even though it's meant to be, and I serve in a Baptist context for 15 years even though it's meant to be this concentric circle where everybody has accountability to everybody else, it oftentimes turns into a hierarchy. Oh yeah, it doesn't function that way. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking what a difference it would make if it had, because there's checks and balances then, that you aren't the be-all, end-all. You are part of this covenant relationship that we're all agreeing to. It would be transformative. And think specifically about how that shifts things then from ministerial leaders. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we often hear that saying, you know, the buck stops with you. Well, what if it didn't? <laughs> you know, like, how would that shift? How you can even orient to your ministry, into your life, into your congregation? I think there are lots of ways to do it right. But I do think that one of the ways we recreate the violence in the world is by setting up these structures that are really. In some ways, they can be incompatible with our witness and with the way we see and understand God. I'm listening to Cole Arthur Riley's book on audiobook right now, This Here Flesh. And she talks about something that I had never really thought about. She talks about in the Genesis story, when Adam and Eve realized they were naked, God sews them clothes. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so, like, how different is that leadership model Rather than saying, you're out, you're banished. Listen, you did this thing and it had consequences. And now, even in that, I'm going to care for you and love you and support you, right? That's really different from the way many of us lead. And when we think about spiritual trauma, a lot of it stems from a mistake that just happened to be public, mm -hmm. right? And then things go left for people. And I think we have lots of opportunities to think about a new way. It's almost as if we become the sin police and it's our job to police your behavior instead of recognizing that that's not how God treated Elijah. That's not how God treated Adam and Eve, that he came in and he cared for those needs. And then he said, I'm still here. There are consequences, but I'm still here. Right. right. And we say there are consequences. Get out. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's totally messed up. And it's so inconsistent with God. Yes, <laughs> I mean, it's so inconsistent. One of the questions I like to ask people in my therapy practice, you know, for folks who identify as Christian, one of the big questions we deal with is what do you believe about the character of God? Mm. Right. And the reason I ask that question, there's this really interesting research that suggests that what people believe about who God is determines whether being a Christian is a protective factor or a risk factor for mental health. So people who see God as benevolent, loving, caring, their faith is a protective factor. It helps to buffer against mental health symptoms. People who see God as wrathful and angry, it's a risk factor and it can exacerbate mental health symptoms, right? And so I think it's important to get curious about who our God is. And to have those conversations openly in congregations, right? Because a lot of the questions, and this is with a physical health diagnosis and certainly with a mental health diagnosis too, often people have questions about God. Like, why did you allow this to happen to me, right? And so another way that we can really show up for people and show ourselves trustworthy is to give people space to struggle, to be angry with God, to have those doubts, to be unsure. And I think it shows that we don't have to have it all together and have all these things figured out in order to be in community with each other or with God. Boy, that's powerful. Is part of why it's a risk factor if you see God as vengeful and wrathful because a lot of times stuff with mental illness deals with you're not good enough or they'd be better off without you or just kind of those negative thoughts and voices that are ever present? Right. If I view God as wrathful and I make a mistake and I will make a mistake because I'm human, right? Then what is my motivation to do something better or to make a different way for myself if one mistake cancels me out? Mm. (laughs) Right. I mean, the other piece, which I think is really fascinating in my work with Christians is like how hard people are willing to work on their own behalf. You know, like sometimes the things we do in therapy that could be helpful for us are not easy. Often they're not easy, right? And so it takes a certain level of commitment to myself to be able to engage fully in the therapy process. But if I don't have a belief that God is particularly invested in me or cares about me or loves me, why would I then be willing to invest all that energy in myself, Mm. you know? So I think it's, for those of us who are believers, we view ourselves through the lens that we've been taught that God views us through. Yeah. And so I think it's really important for that to be one of love and care and attention. Interesting. So therapy is a pathway to freedom. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah like that. I'm completely fascinated and enthralled. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. This is amazing. Yes. If you could recommend one resource to pastor or lay people, what would you encourage them to read, listen to, check out? So there's a great organization and I put this in the resource list for the workshops too, Matt, is there's a great organization called Pathways to Promise. 
they do a lot of work with congregations, have a lot of different guides. And so I think that's a good place to start because they tackle things like at the attitude level, talking about stigma. They also address like, you know, some of the system level things we were talking about in terms of how congregations function. If you don't already have Jermaine on your list of people, Matt, he would be a great person to do workshops too. His name is Jermaine Alberti. I'll send you his information. Yeah, please do. I would appreciate that. Yeah, he's great. So... All right. Well, as we come to the end of our time together, and Jessica, I, I think Shelly and I both agree that we don't want this time to end <laughs> because this is such an absolutely fascinating and such a critically important conversation yes. for congregations. And the center is going to continue to focus on mental health. And I know your work focuses on that. And we thank you for your work in that space. It's so critical. But where can folks find you, follow you, learn more about what you do and the wisdom that you can share? Sure. So my website is drjessicabrown.com, drjessicabrown.com. And I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Dr. Jessica Brown. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. Appreciate that. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you again for your work. And also thank you for the education events that when this releases, this is the weird time dilation of podcasting that (laughs) they haven't happened yet. But by the time people actually hear this, they will have happened. (laughs) But if anybody's interested, she's doing a couple of education events for the Center for Congregations. We will have recordings of those. So by the time you hear this, they will have passed, but we will have recordings available. So if you want to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, we can send you a link to those recordings. So again, Jessica, thank you so much much for being here. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. This was great. Thank you. All right. So that was our interview with Dr. Jessica Brown. Uh, Shelly, what are some things that really stood out to you from our conversation with her? Oh my gosh, so much, Matt. But she said a couple of things. Um, She quoted her dad and he said, don't be so spiritually minded that you are no earthly good. And I think that is an amazing Mm. quote, an amazing way to look at it, that as Christians, we have to be aware of both worlds, the one that is yet to come, Mm. but the one that is here. And the whole point of our faith and our witness and our walk is to make an impact here. So I just thought that was such a powerful quote. I won't forget that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then she said, bad behavior is an expression of an unmet need. And I was just thinking the whole time, what if that's how we saw it? Not as, oh my gosh, you're a bad person, but this particular behavior, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're longing for? What is it that you're searching for? And how do we help you meet it in a way that's healthier for you and those around you? That's a transformative way to look at it for me, rather than just, Mm -hmm. you're a terrible person, get out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my wife did an entire second master's degree on substance abuse counseling, and it is really eye-opening to hear what the clinicians and real scholars in the field, the way that they talk about substance abuse disorders and how invariably they're tied to some kind of trauma or some kind of underlying mental health concern. Whereas in the way that I was raised, you're Mm. a bad person. (laughs) If you have an addiction, you made bad choices and you're a bad person and you just need to stop that. But the science behind it really paints a very different picture. And, And I know not everybody out there 
sees science and faith as compatible as I do, but I do tend to think that we learn truth from each of them and they're mutually informative. And when we use both our understandings of sin falling short in theology and our understandings of mental health and the way mental health disorders show up, you can come to some really powerful solutions to those things. You can. Well, God doesn't say that we are sin. God says that we do sin, but that we are valuable and good. Mm -hmm. So God separates our personhood from our behavior Mm -hmm. already. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I like the way you said that, Matt, that science and faith, they inform one another. That's a really great way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why I love interviews like this because you have someone who is so clearly an expert in their field, but who is also deeply passionate about their faith. And I think congregations can learn and benefit from that, that, you know, depending on the size of your congregation and the people you have available, you know, what does the makeup of your leadership team look like? And not even just like paid staff, but even your board. Like if you have a mental health professional or mental health professionals in your congregation, are they in a place where they can speak into what's happening in the life of your church? Or somebody in the world of finance, somebody in the world of art, you know? So who are the people that are part of your congregation that can share their expertise that they have gained, which according to at least most Christian theologies, they have gained because they're part of the image of God and they're reflecting some element of creativity or understanding or depth of wisdom or knowledge in some area that we consider, quote, secular. But what can they bring from that into the congregational space? And I just can't imagine, you know, whichever congregation Dr. Brown is a part of must have just such a great resource in her and just the ability to learn and grow in that way to where they can support and help people who are having crises, mental health crises, or even as she said, just trying to help people flourish. Yeah. Yeah. She was so kind is a weird word to say, but just so empathetic and understanding and kind that, you know, this is where we are. This is where we want to be. And let me help you cross the bridge to get there. Like no church is bad or we're doing this wrong. It was just, hey, here's where we are. This is our reality. And But there are steps we can take to get to a better place. And I really appreciated that about just kind of her demeanor overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something that she said that really struck me is something that has resonated with me across my work at the center in general, and especially across our podcast, that as we talk about self-care, as we talk about young adult engagement, as we talk about children's ministry, as we talk about reaching out to the unchurched or to the de-churched, the one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is just listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just conversation and listening. And if anybody out there has a recommendation of someone who is really good at helping people understand how to listen better and just be a better conversation partner and who can help train and teach others to do that. I would love to know who that person is so that we could interview them and potentially even recommend them as a resource. Because I think so much of what undergirds our congregational life together is our ability to just genuinely listen and care for one another. And I think we forget that and move past it sometimes into programs and into you know studies and, and other kinds of things, which are good, they're fine, But I think everything needs to be undergirded with the understanding that relationship is foundational to what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a member of a congregation. And the more we can understand how to be better conversation partners, listeners, and just human beings to each other, the more successful all of the programs that we try to implement will be. I like that, Matt. That's really good. That's a really good learning that you're drawing from all the work that we're doing. 
I was also struck by how she continued to talk about vulnerability, authenticity, mm-hmm. like when pastors are willing to talk about the things that they're dealing with or parishioners are willing to talk about the things that they're dealing with. I think sometimes we get we get this image that we have to be a certain person. And so we take that image into church with us on Sunday mornings. I'll never forget my daughter was eight. My son was nine. And I was on staff at this congregation and I couldn't get the kids out of bed and I was going to be late. And so in mom mode, I was yelling, come on, get up, let's get moving. We're fighting the whole way to church and we get out of the car and we walk into the building and the first person I see says, good morning, Shelly, how are you today? And I said, oh, good morning, I'm doing well. And my eight-year-old daughter says, "Uh, that's a lie. (laughs) I'll just kind of look at her. (laughs) I said, what? And she said, mom, we have been fighting the whole way here. And so I just started laughing and I looked at this woman. I said, she's right. We've been fighting the whole way here. (laughs) And the woman said, oh, I'm so relieved. So were we. But it was such a lesson for me in this, you know, just own what's going on. And what you're going to find is more people are in that boat probably than you know. And you'll never know that if you're not willing to be vulnerable and say, this is what's going on with me. Now, I'm not saying we air all of our dirty laundry the yeah. minute we walk into the church, but there needs to be room for authenticity and that vulnerability that my eight-year-old taught me to have that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kids can teach us so much. <laughs> yeah, there's such truth to that, that I attended a 12-step program for a period of time, and it was a common statement among the people who attended it that said, you know, I go to church at such and such on Sunday, but this is my community. This is my oh, congregation. Wow. And, and what they meant by that was that the vulnerability and the real deep life sharing that was happening in that space was really their true community. And it wasn't to denigrate church. I mean, it had its place in their lives. But I think that also shows that dichotomy that you're speaking about, Shelley, where we don't feel like we can bring our authentic selves and talk about the stuff that's uncomfortable or difficult, sometimes in congregational spaces. Yeah. And if we can get better at that, then I think people can kind of breathe a sigh of relief and be like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one that struggles with <laughs> yes, life. Yes, <laughs> yes. And you create space for authentic community. I can bring my true self into the space and you're going to honor that. That's a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's in sharing our pain and sharing our problems that they get attention and get healed. It's like if you, you, know, you go to the doctor with a broken arm, but you're pretending like everything's okay, and they can't diagnose you, then they can't help. And it's the same kind of thing when we step into congregational spaces. We want support. We want people to help carry our burdens with us. But if we're hiding those burdens, of course no one's going to ask us about it or help us to carry it because they don't even know that it exists. And so, yeah, that authenticity of just being human is so critical. When did it become so bad to be a human? When did it become not okay to mess up? Well, that's something that's always puzzled me because, you know, from the Christian tradition, we have the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament. And other than the person of Jesus, everybody else has real bad stuff. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you look at the heroes of the Old Testament or of the Jewish scriptures, and every one of them had false failings and flaws. And you look at, you know, the disciples in the New Testament, you look at Paul even talking about himself And that's one thing that I appreciate about what we consider our sacred texts is that it's unflinchingly human. Yes. That all of the characters in there are unflinchingly human and flawed. And that's what the writers decided to write down. Yes. (laughs) It's the fact that everybody had problems. And that 
is consoling to me. That's comforting to me because if we had, you know, this sacred text where everybody was heroic and never had any problems or always overcame and never made mistakes, I don't know that I could take it seriously because it doesn't resonate with my experience of what it means to be, be a person. Right. So flawed and yet so overwhelmingly loved. Mm-hmm. So that means we can be too. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, the people that we meet in our lives that are the most dear to us usually are those who express their love for us in that way, that they understand that we're flawed and broken, but show us love anyway, right? Like that's how we understand God's divine love towards us. Yep. So we have a couple of resources to suggest for you that also deal with mental health and counseling, coaching kinds of things. One is an organization called the Full Strength Network, and their website is fullstrength.org. And they are an organization that provides coaching and counseling for ministry leaders. They actually, for $150 per year, you as a ministry leader can either have professional coaching and or professional counseling. They also have peer support groups and a ton of other resources. But Matt and I were talking about this one earlier, and $150 is probably going to be the cost of one therapy session. Mm -hmm. So for $150 a year, you have access to counseling. Really fantastic organization, Full Strength Network. Another one is Pathways to Promise. This is one that Dr. Brown suggested. This is also an organization that connects mental health, faith, and culture. They have blogs. They have a ton of different resources. They've been around since, I think, 1989, it's said. And so you can find them at pathways, the number two, promise.org, pathways to promise. Matt, what resources are you bringing? Yeah, thanks for those, Shelly. And as a reminder, we'll have the links to these resources in the show notes. And just to mention really quickly, for the Full Strength Network, we actually had their executive director and one of their coaches, season four, episode 18 of the Center for Congregations podcast, And John Opelewski, who was the coach that we spoke with, also did an ed event for us. If you're interested in that ed event, you can email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, and I'd be happy to share the link to that recording with you. I also want to bring up Preparing for Amazement Ministries, run by Marcus Carlson. It's actually an organization in Northeast Indiana, just a little bit north of Fort Wayne. But he has a thing called Pastors for Pastors. And so basically, it is not only coaching, but also peer support, because we understand that Clergy carry really heavy burdens, and Marcus has developed a way of trying to help clergy get connected with other clergy members in order to be able to share those burdens and to carry each other's burdens, because often ministry can be a bit tricky and a bit lonely. So I did want to bring that to the table. And also, there's a book that I am a fan of called The Body Keeps the Score, and this is more probably in the vein of self-care, but it's a book that was written essentially to help people understand the connection between mental health and stress-related issues and how it actually does impact you physically in many ways. And so just delineates that connection really well. So just helping someone to develop and further understand how mental health can affect physical health and maybe even sometimes recognizing that physical ailments are an indicator of stress. And so finding ways to be mentally healthy in order to also help your physical health. And Shelly, I saw you nodding. Are you familiar with that book? I am familiar with that book. It's on my to-be-read shelf. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot on my to-be-read shelf. I know probably none of you have that issue, but I do. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure no one listening. And certainly I don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah. 
tying my stack of books just to the side of my computer. Yes. (laughs) Well, hey, just a quick reminder to everyone that these resources that we bring, these are things that we've just independently identified over the years in our work with congregations and we think would be really helpful for other congregations out there. We have a searchable website called the CRG.org, T-H-E-C-R-G.org. It stands for the Congregational Resource Guide. And it's where we have, I think, upwards of 2,000, maybe more resources that we've identified as helpful for congregations. Basically, you search by keyword, and it'll bring up recommendations for you. Some of them are collections. that We've put together collections around certain topics, and it's books, articles, videos, podcasts, organizations, coaches, consultants, all kinds of things that are available. And that's free to use for anyone listening to this anywhere around the country or around the world. We would love to hear from you. Let us know your ideas, your resources, people that you think you would love to hear an interview with or that you think would be good on the podcast. Or if you just want to drop us a line and give us your opinion on the podcast, as long as it's good, uh, (laughs) you can send us an email at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We really would love to hear from you. Yeah, and also, if you find this podcast helpful, we would love for you to rate and review us, whatever platform you are listening on, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you would just rate and review us. And those ratings and reviews are the best way for the algorithm to recognize us and for other people to be able to find the information. Another great way is just to tell somebody else about us. So if you find an episode that's particularly helpful and you are aware of another congregational leader or someone that you know that's facing a similar issue, or has similar questions, feel free to point them to the podcast. And we'd like to thank the Lilly Endowment for their generous funding of the Center for Congregations and all that we do. We love being able to help congregations because healthy congregations equal healthy communities. And so we really appreciate the endowment and their commitment to healthy congregations in the state of Indiana and beyond. Absolutely. We also want to mention Jaden Lee, who is our editor for the podcast. Thanks for making us sound great. And as always, we want to do our geographical shout out. So thank you to the people in Belize who have been listening to the podcast. So hello, Belize. And thanks for listening to the Center for Congregations podcast. All right. Well, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being part of the Center for Congregations podcast. And for the Center for Congregations, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Shelley Riggs-Jordan. Have a great day. Have a great day.